Revelations 12, beginning in verse 9, says this, The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying, Now salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come, before the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. This is the word of the Lord. We began this little interlude with Mark to address some emotional responses uh, that we've been dealing with, pondering through in our culture, um, what I would call a political power grab, the redefinition of America, a moral revolution, whatever you'd like to call it. Um, what makes what's taking place, in my estimation, the loss of liberty is the rejection of who God is, His nature, His sovereignty, the one who establishes nations, the pursuit and principles of who He is as Creator for the maximum notion of humans flourishing. When we follow who God is, when we follow His principles, human beings flourish. And in this nation, albeit being implemented by fallen sinful human beings, we have been blessed. Contrast that with the other option of over and against the pursuit of the God of one's own making, the idolatry that we've been sharing by those same fallen sinful human beings, and what you end up with is oppression and affliction. And so Godward reveals to us this pursuit of idolatry that it in fact leads to such things. It almost has to because we're fallen creatures. And because of our fallenness, we will do what we have to do to supplant authority and, and oversee and lord it over, as Scripture says, those of others. So what I think we're seeing is this pursuit of secularism in our culture. It is the new, well, old idol, if you will, an ongoing result of what I think we're becoming more aware of if you're paying attention. It's a people end up becoming less free, if that's the truth. If God's Word is true, if idolatry leads to this oppression, leads to this affliction, if you pursue that, there is less freedom, there is less liberty in a culture. And that leads you to harsh things somewhere in history. And that knowledge of that uncertainty leads us to deal with the particular emotion we're focusing on, the people in power who will use that, and that's fear. Fear is a powerful motivator. And Christ came to demonstrate the use and demonstrate to us something unique and different, something pure, something holy, His power and truth. And He stood all of that in, in perfect harmony and how it's used, how it functions, so humans could flourish, so you could see who God is. And He put all that on the foundation of His holy love so the distinctions would be clear. So much so that he does not lord it over anyone. In fact, it took him to the cross. And so that leads the Christian, the follower of Christ, to do the same thing. To obey, to follow the commands of our Savior. To be strong and courageous like he mentions to Joshua. To say it positively. Or as to his disciples, to those following him as Luke records in the negative way. Don't fear, don't be anxious, don't worry. So we're in the middle of discovering what that looks like and how we as Christians understand the natural fear that we experience in life but not allow that natural fear to turn into slavish or sinful fear, unhealthy fear. 
And so last week we looked at Revelations, those three foundations that are listed in our text of overcoming idolatry are truly foundations of pure worship, what worship looks like. The worship of the one true living God, His Son, Jesus Christ. The good news is that He shed His blood for you. That was a part of it. The word of faith that we have, the testimony that we have, and that you're holding on to that testimony. The results of what you see in, in culture, the battle that you are that is in essence being waged is what God is going to prevail. Will the God of creation prevail or will a new one be established? The God who created all things, the God who governs, the one who gives life, one who gives an idol who takes life. One provides the mean for creation, for humans, for flourishing, the other for its decline. See, the results of idolatry and oppression and affliction, the process, I think, goes something like this. What once was condemned must now be celebrated. What once was celebrated must be condemned, and those who continue to celebrate what is now condemned must themselves be condemned. Does that make sense? What we used to understand as the principles of God now are condemned. And we celebrate the godlessness. And if you continue to adhere to godly principles, you must also be condemned. And so for faithful people to fight back in the principles of Scripture, referring to Ephesians chapter 6, we reject those worldly, false, sinful patterns and stand by the authority that God is over all, that He has His holy patterns in which we are to follow, even in the face of greatest fears. Which, by the way, is the only other method the world has. It's the only thing that they can, the only thing they can try to motivate you to do. If, you can, if we can get past this, if we can wrestle with this in our own lives and our own tensions that happen, that's the only thing they have. That's the only, in other words, it's the only thing they can threaten you with. And so how do we overcome? How do you stand courageously? like Joshua was called to do in the face of fear that will use, be used against God, against His anointed, so you do not fall in sinful fear. We listed those last week. We began with the first prescription, if you will, to plumb the depths of the gospel. It's a call to remember what you're being saved from and what you're being saved to. And we have to remember the gospel is more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's far more robust than that is what we shared it's God's covenant with you. God seeing you, seeing you in this very moment of life, knowing you from all eternity in His sovereignty, still desires a relationship and still enters in a covenant with someone like me. <laughs> That's just amazing to me. Paul said in Corinthians 2 that he knows nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And so the gospel in, in that section that he's writing to the Corinthians church, in that section... It is far bigger than just Jesus dying a substitutionary death for you and salvation. If that's all you, if that's the only, only category you have for the gospel, you're not going deep enough. Let me give you a couple more. In that same section that Paul writes in his message, it also makes this reference to bringing down the princes of this world 
and in, in essence, then all the things that the princes, then the worldly governments and all those things he's referring to, it's what they control. He's bringing down all of those so they can be subject to Christ. That means, and that, that concept, therefore, means, that means education. That means politics. That means music. That means entertainment. That means the arts. That means all of those things come under the authority of Jesus Christ. Science, military, cooking, cleaning, the mundane things of life, all of it come under his authority. All of life. In other words, the gospel and what Christ has done sets the example for us to follow. Holiness, the purity of life, what is right, what is good, what is pleasing. And by contrast, in setting those up, defining what is not. It's a godly moral influence. And you can see Peter also refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Another aspect of the depth of the gospel goes even farther is that Christ is victorious over all things. So we have our salvation that God's entering into this covenant. He is demonstrating through the gospel how we understand what is good, what is right, what is true, how to live properly to glorify Him. But it's also this victorious over all physical and spiritual entities. The greatest among us is death. And in His death and resurrection, the gospel, in other words, Jesus Christ seizes victory over the devil, Satan, and his angels, and even death itself. The resurrection, the promise that you and I have of eternal life. The other aspect to that, or another aspect of the depth of the gospel, for those who believe, is the meek. What do they inherit? Jacob read that this morning. They inherit the earth. There's a new heaven and a new earth that you and I will be participating in. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. There are so many more categories of the gospel to plumb the depths. Those are just cursory, if you will, just to give you some categories to consider. And on the account of the gospel, because of those and more, don't fear. He will not turn away from you on the account of the Son. You will not be left abandoned. And it's not because of anything you're doing. It's because of what the Son has done for you. Does that, do, you do you understand? All, the, all our morality and the, and the transformation that's taking place, God entered the covenant before you were like that. Before He saved you, He's bringing this covenant to you. He is not abandoning you. There's, he's not leaving you to fear on the account of the Son, on what the Son has done. Maybe you feel that you can barely keep life together sometimes, even when it's going well, <laughs> let alone when the trials start crashing in like tidal waves in your life. How will you fare? I will put my fear in their hearts, and they will not turn from me. Jeremiah 32, 40. God has entered the covenant. He's the one bringing you to it. He's the one not abandoning you. I will put the fear of Him in, their heart, in, your, in your heart. The godly fear, the honoring fear, the one that keeps you in the direction that you would go. So that's plumbing the depths of the gospel. Second prescription, if you will, is this. Ponder the alternative. 
the pain of sinful fear. Ponder the fear, or ponder the pain rather. To overcome fear, pause long enough to consider what sinful fear will produce in your life. Pain, misery, agony, guilt, hardship, depression, dysfunction in one life. All those things that we really don't desire at all in our life. So ponder the pain. Consider your own life's journey and what you've succumbed to in it in your life and the results from time to time. Consider the long history and the persecution of the church where the choice was life or death, where some recanted their faith in Christ. I believe it is good to remember those moments in our own life, but also in the life of church history that would stir us awake from our spiritual slumber and awaken us out of our sinful fear. Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. It's a contrast. Once again, who are you fearing? Are you more concerned about the hands of man or the hands of God? Consider what lay ahead unless you receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, the Son. Unless the Lord overcomes, unless He empowers you to rid yourself of sinful fear, Not only will it be hell on earth, but it will certainly be hell for all eternity. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8 I want to give you a quote here from John Flavel. Remember, he's the Puritan minister. So these are 350-year-old words that he wrote to his congregation. He says this, quote, Here we behold the law of heaven executed upon cowards and renegades whose fears make them run from Christ in time of danger. Think upon this, you fearful and faint-hearted professors. You cannot bear the thought of lying in a nasty dungeon. You have to remember, back then there was a lot of persecution going on, remember? So how will you lie in the lake of fire and brimstone? You are afraid of human frowns. They will die. How will you live with demons? Is man's wrath like God's fury poured out? Is not God's little finger heavier than all the tyrants of the world? Unquote. See, the foundational key of overcoming that, as Revelation reminds us, is not to love your life more than you ought. Remember what Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And we have, in these last days since Christ's first coming, think we've heard and known for so long, it's this notion of, not being diligent in making disciples, allowing the fear to enter into our lives, not to, not to share the gospel. One day Christ will split the heavens open, the saints who have gone before you and I, and we will meet them in the air. There will be a deafening shout. The heavens will be gone, the elements will melt, Scripture says, with an immeasurable heat. The last trump will sound. The dead in Christ will raise to everlasting life in a new heaven and a new earth. 
And those who have stood with Christ are not afraid, but those who are not rest in everlasting death. See, whatever you're facing is the point. Nothing compares to that. Whatever this world is offering, whatever this fear that happens in this world, nothing compares to what it will be like when you see him face to face. And so consider carefully what sinful fear brings. What it does to your conscience. It would be better to suffer in this life, would it not? A momentary suffering in a short span of 80 some odd years potentially. Even to choose that and choose suffering because it has an end date rather than suffering for all eternity? Wouldn't it be better to receive God's grace and forgiveness? The power that He gives you to confess that sin, to overcome all of it, the salvation through Jesus Christ that you don't deserve rather than to pursue the shallowness of just happiness in this life? Holiness or happiness. Get those out of order, and you end up with neither. So consider the pain. Ponder it. The decisions of what sinful fear will lead to. Prescription number three is this. Prepare for it. Prepare for suffering. Knowing that suffering at some point in time and at some varied level of veracity will show up in your life, right? We know this. We experience it. Knowing evil is coming can be somewhat manageable. We're not interested in it. We're not looking for it. You don't go out of your way to, 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 you know, to play the martyr. No one, no one, that's, not, that's not the aspect of what God is asking. Stephen didn't want to get stoned. Nobody does. Nobody wants to live that way or live in that kind of fear. But evil is most frightful, I think, when you're just going about your own life, just doing life, enjoying life. Enjoying all of it from the blessings of God and from out of nowhere, it just shows up and enters your life by surprise. Let me quote from John Flavel again. I am at ease in my home, but the time may come when my home will be a prison cell. At present, I see friends' faces full of smiles and honors. Soon, I may only see enemies' faces full of frowns and terrors. At present, I have an estate to supply all my wants for my, and provide for my family. But this may shortly become spoils for my enemy. They might sweep away everything and reap the fruit of my labor. At present, I have life. Oh, how soon it might fall into cruel, bloodthirsty hands. I have no better security for these things than the martyr's hand. They suffer the loss of all things for Christ's sake. They were being persecuted 350 years ago. He saw this through the countryside of Europe. He understood, even though he had everything he needed, God provided everything he needed, an estate for his family, all the things to take care of. He knew it could be taken away. So how do you prepare? How do you prepare for that? Become familiar with them. 
Peter said we shouldn't be surprised or think trials are a strange thing to Christian people. If you're always surprised, you're more apt to fall into fear. How many of a believer has been caught off guard by some evil befalling them and then blaming God for the outcome? Blaming God for why is this happening to me? How many a Christian has drifted away because they were believed or taught and wrongly so that when you come to Christ, your life was going to be wonderful all the time or that God would never let you down. He will never leave you or forsake you, which is true. And then you interpret that to mean how you want it to be. When God doesn't live up to those expectations, He's easy to blame. It's the bad soil from Mark chapter 4 we went through. Let me ask you this. How do you cure someone? Or if you're a parent, how do you cure a child from a particular fear that you know as a parent they have no need to be fearful from? Like me in the dark in the basement with the monster behind the furnace. (laughs) How are you cured? Take them by the hand to face their fear that you have already overcome as a parent, right? You show them. You don't just chuck them into the deep end and hope they make it. That's not what God has done for you. That's not what He's done for me. He takes you by the hand because He's been through it already. Fear drives us to think all sorts of things, doesn't it? The worry the anxiety, all the what-ifs that you role-play in your mind? Do you do that? 99% of those never come to fruition, do they? (laughs) And you've wasted all this time, energy, and effort, and emotion, all this tenseness and and veracity of just, ah, and then it doesn't even happen like you thought it was going to happen. Jesus said, don't be fearful. But if it's new to you and you've never gone through something, it's hard not to be, isn't it? Remember, even the strongest of us succumb. Think about the first time you were driving, maybe, or one of those firsts that you, you know, had to do for driving for me, the first road trip that I had, the first time I got in the car, got on the expressway, big honking semi, and we're doing this. <laughs> What do I do? Put on the brakes. (laughs) My instructor, Mr. Matthews, God bless him. (laughs) Mr. Lotzenheiser, what are you doing? I'm slowing down. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) He's bigger than me. He laughed. Now I'm doing this, and my wife's like, keep your eyes on the road. (laughs) Right? After you get through it, it's not fearful so much anymore. You understand it. That's why when you disciple another, they need, they need to see you live it out. They need to know what you know. Your discipleship and bringing someone to Christ, you assume that role as discipler. You don't just bring them here and let the preacher do it or a small group do it or, or, or some program do it. You are the disciple and they need that relationship so they can see what you've seen Understand what you've been through, how God has demonstrated that. Just like the testimonies we, we've, we hear, to be able to share those, 
This is what God has done in my life. He'll do it for you too. He'll do it differently, maybe. Different circumstances. We need to see each other's victories over fear to strengthen one another, to give each other hope. One of the reasons we desire for you to be in a small group, for you to be in an intimate relationship, doing life together in a personal way, to share those things that God is doing in your life so you build up the body. I know, <laughs> I know many, many of you maybe, um, have an attitude kind of like my incredibly awesome, wonderful wife. It's, she's just a party waiting to happen, and she just wants to live in her happy bubble, right? <laughs> and if you're not going to be happy, don't come in, <laughs> right? We would rather think good things We want to think joyful things. We want to think the future will be full of peace and prosperity. But sometimes it's good to ponder harder things. Jesus was familiar with grief and suffering. He understood what evil was all about. In Luke 12, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's looking ahead to the crucifixion. It's affecting his thoughts. It's affecting all all the things about him. That moment when you have to do something that maybe you've never done before or you're being asked to do something that is big and grand and hard to do. And sometimes you just want it over with. Just let me get through this. At one point, Peter, misplacing his thinking of an earthly kingdom, The rest and peace, his happy bubble. Jesus, may it never be. This isn't going to happen to you. What does Jesus respond? (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Those same disciples would one day be brought before kings, the power elites of their day. They would be imprisoned, they would be beaten. And some of them will be put to death. How else do you prepare? Prepare your mind, knowing that it's coming. Through much tribulation will you enter the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 12, 42, and it's in Luke 12 again as well. Jesus referring to a battle says, get ready for battle. If an owner of a house knows the time when the thief comes, you can be sure he would stay awake and not permit his home to be broken into. When you know it's coming, what do you do? You lock the doors. You arm yourself. When you know something's coming, you know it's coming. Jesus asked the same thing in the garden with his disciples. Watch and pray. How do you equip yourself spiritually? You watch and pray. Stay awake, stand guard, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, travels around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6. What's the watching? What's the standing guard? Proverbs 4 says this, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them in their heart, for they are life to those who find them. They are healing to their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance from 
for from it flows springs of life. That's how you prepare. That's how you watch and pray. The watching is the sentry guards. The watching is the word of God in your life. Put it in your heart so you may not sin against him. It empowers the Holy Spirit to fill you up, to, to build you up in those moments when you need not fear. To need not fear when the day of trouble comes. He will fill you up just like he did with Stephen. You may think about that now. How could someone do that? I don't know. But when that day comes, I can be assured that he will never leave me, forsake me. And if that's required of me, he will fill me up to be the very same thing. Let me interject a possible objection at this point. The notion of suffering for Christ. The objection being, in general terms, for you and I as Christians, here in this place, in this time in which we were living in, are quite unaccustomed to that kind of suffering. We, unlike a great many in the world, are blessed to live in good times, gracious times by and large, for an extended period of time in our nation's history. But when that day comes, being unaccustomed to suffering is not an excuse to travel down into sinful fear. Why would you not expect it to come at some point? Why would you be so surprised when it does? Are you not a part of God's covenant? Christ says to pick up your cross and follow me. Are those terms missing in our vocabulary and our spiritual lives? 2 Timothy 2, 3 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Through much tribulation, again, will you enter the kingdom of God. At some level, here we have so heavy of eyes, have we fallen asleep to the prosperity and to the materialism of this blessed nation? And do we keep dreaming of more? Do you somehow think that the government will prop up this house of cards, keeping the printing presses running in our financial institutions? Do you think that nothing's going to happen, that there'll be no hardship? Revelations 18, as she, the, the woman, the prostitute, glorified herself, living in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Whether you're accustomed to trials or not, whether you're accustomed to suffering or not, it is no excuse or cause for fear. Not when you plumb the depths of the gospel and not when you understand and ponder the pain and the suffering that is in this world. Not when you prepare for it. Let me give you one more real quick. Number four. Put your hands or put yourself in the hands of God through it all. Hold tight to everything you are, everything you have with open hands like this. Knowing truly everything you have belongs to Him. We say it, we sing it, and rightfully so, that all things belong to God. In fact, Everything you have is a gift from His. But I wonder how much we think that or say that without much reflection of the meaning 
Proverbs 16, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The way we overcome sinful fear is to put or commit all the things in this life to Him. Job understood this. Abraham understood it. Daniel and his friends understood it. The apostles understood it. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good, 1 Peter 4. Do you realize that can be God's will? It's not mine. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But I can, knowing He's working in me and through me. Do you know the Lord knows how to deliver His people in those moments, whatever you're facing? So we commit to do good no matter what, as God defines it. We commit to faith in God, that He is sovereign over all of our life, the worldly events. We commit to God to do His will, conforming our lives to His. And in doing so, we repent, we renounce our sinful nature and all the confidence that this world has to offer. The Lord knows how to deliver His people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. At this point, you might be thinking, well, hey, that all sounds great. Looks good on paper when you draw it out. But I have failed and fumbled so many times, even in the smallest of trials in my own life, I have succumbed to this fear. I can't imagine how I could stand up under something greater, to which I would agree. For when we walk alone, you just think it's just a Jesus and you event, not in a body. When we face trials in our own strength, we are outmanned, outgunned, and outprepared. We are overmatched. It is only through the grace of God in your life and the power of Holy Spirit that you become more than a conqueror. Think of Abraham. Think of his life for a minute. I mean, there's so many examples in scriptures. Think of him able to offer his son on an altar. But in the next moment, have his wife tell everybody when they come into a new country that we're, we're brother and sister. David stands before giants and slew Goliath. But when he's king, he pretends to be insane out of fear. Peter is afraid of a small servant girl accusing him of being with Jesus. He denies he ever knew him. But then sometime later, boldly preaches in front of the council. God is permitting us to experience lesser trials, I think, to get to the end of ourselves, to rid us of our own self-consciousness, our own pride, to see our weakness. So when something greater comes, we will be prepared. We will be humble. We will not run to Egypt. We will not run to another idol. We will run to God Himself. These things that are happening are not meant to be discouragements. Satan will try to use them as such. But what you mean for evil, God uses for good, right? God uses sin sinlessly in our life. And to overcome fear at this point, ask yourself this question. 
Do you believe it? Do you believe God is greater than all your fear?